We're so pleased, as you just heard from Rob, to have as our speaker this morning, Jim Tankersley, who is the author of a very timely and important new book called The Riches of This Land, The Untold True Story of America's Middle Class. Jim is a tax and economics reporter for the New York Times, and he has written extensively over the years about the stagnation of the American middle class, the decline of economic opportunity in wide swaths of our country, and how policy changes here in Washington have exacerbated those trends over the past few decades. In addition to the Times, over the years, Jim has covered politics and policy at a number of other papers around the country, including the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, and the Toledo Blade. While at the Blade, Jim and a colleague won an award for a series of articles on how and why the Ohio economy declined so dramatically over the course of a single generation. Jim is a native of Oregon and a graduate of Stanford. With that, please join me in welcoming Jim Tankersley. Jim, take it away. Thanks, Clark and, and Rob, and, and thank you so much for joining um, and, and, and being here uh, with me. Um, uh, here we go. Uh, thank you for, uh, for joining and, and, uh, and, and being with me. I'm uh, uh, just delighted to be here, both as an author and, and uh, of course, as a journalist, but, but also as an Episcopalian. Um, I grew up, uh, like Clark said, in Oregon, in a small town with uh, a, a church that was really uh, my home um, for, for so much of my childhood. And I think that, um, that the crew at, at St. Barnabas, uh, which, which I, I know has shared this link this morning, uh, would be delighted to know that I, I still consider them my home. Uh, it's just past eight o'clock in the morning right now on, on the West Coast, which means it's, it's the eight o'clock service would have just started um, in, a, in a normal time. Uh, and when I was uh, growing up in Oregon, I often was served as an acolyte for the eight o'clock service. And um, I think that the, uh, the, the, uh, the Father Treadwell, the, the priest uh, who I grew up with, and, and Al Cronk, who was so often the lay Eucharistic minister for those eight o'clock services, and Jenny Olson and the ladies of the, of the altar guild would be tickled to know that um, right around the time of, of the service starting, I, I would be here with you one day talking about the, the struggles of America's workers and the working people who went to church uh, with me and, and who surrounded me in my hometown and who surround all of us today in our lives. And I think they'd also be uh, uh, both amused and not surprised to know that I, I was going to start this talk um, not with high-minded economics or, or any sort of research or data, but by talking to you about my basement. Um, I've been thinking a lot about my basement lately because uh, along with everything else that's going on in the country right now, a pandemic and a recession and um, probably the most tumultuous year of politics uh, in the time that I've been alive, along with all that, it's just, it's rained a lot in the Washington DC area um, over the last several months. Uh, I live in Alexandria, Virginia, just across the river from Washington. And uh, my wife and I own a house that was built in 1920, and we bought it a couple of years ago, knowing that the basement uh, got wet when it rained. Well, uh, this summer it's gotten wet a lot, and despite uh, some of our efforts and, and some investments in, in trying to stop that, it, it continues to flood whenever uh, the heavens open. And, um, and so we've been spending a lot of time down there trying to figure out how to shore up our foundation, how to get 
uh, our basement in a place where it no longer floods, where it is once again performing uh, like you want a house to uh, and, and keeping the water out and being a place where people can um, gather and, and thrive uh, and, and not just a place that, uh, that accumulates mold and, and uh, anxiety for us as, as the rains come. Um, and I think it's actually a very good metaphor for, for what's happened with our economy, with, our, with the foundations of America over the last several decades. We have seen um, cracks in, in those foundations. We have seen water flowing in, in, in parts of our economy that we used to think of as our, our true strength. And um, we have seen a lot of efforts to repair and a lot of promises to repair that have not come to pass. So that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to, uh, to talk to you about what's gone on uh, with the American middle class and, and that foundation of our economy. And I want to start by talking in particular about what I mean by a foundation of an economy. It's, it's an abstract concept. A lot of people might define it by our market-based system or, or by the laws uh, that, that set up um, that system. But, but I, don't, I don't think of an economy that way. I certainly don't think of our foundations that way. I think of our foundations as people, um, the workers, the women and men who make our economy go. And when I think of those people in particular, it's, it's helpful for me to think of um, specific examples and the one who I write about in my book uh, and who I think about a lot just in, in, as, a, as a great avatar for the struggles of the American worker over the last several decades is a remarkable man uh, from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, I know, named Ed Green. I met Ed uh, in the fall of 2013, late summer of 2013, I guess, the final day of the single A baseball season in uh, Winston-Salem. Uh, I was down to do a story and I had brought my son uh, with me who was uh, seven years old at the time and, uh, and a big baseball fan still is. And uh, it was a difficult time uh, for us uh, in, in our lives, in my career and a lot of things. And I, I was down seeking some answers for a, a question that had been really bothering me for, for really much of my life, but definitely through my entire career as an economics reporter um, about why the economy wasn't working for American workers anymore. And uh, I had been charged by my editors with writing a, a series of stories that would really seek to answer that question, what's really gone wrong for the middle class? And so uh, my son and I were there to meet Ed, who, who, who was an example of, of one of the really debilitating uh, trends that's happened to the country uh, over time. Ed, uh, met, we met Ed uh, sort of ambling down a concourse. Uh, he's a tall man and uh, has big hands and a big smile. And when uh, we met him, uh, he, he immediately started telling my son about all the things he did as a custodian at, at the ballpark for the Winston-Salem Dash baseball team. Uh, he told him how hard it is to scrub Pepsi off concrete, for example. And, uh, and told him about all the sorts of things people leave behind in a stadium that uh, a hardworking guy has to clean up. He sort of mentioned in passing to my son and then uh, fleshed this out uh, in, in subsequent interviews with me that this wasn't even his first job of the day or his main job. Ed rises every morning, often before dawn, to lay tar on the highways for the state of North Carolina. And in the evenings, uh, back then, he was a custodian or an usher. He worked at sporting events, uh, a second full-time job. And 
he does that because one job is not enough to give his family a middle-class life. Ed used to have a, a middle-class job in New York City where he grew up. Uh, he drove a bus and he earned a middle-class wage. But a little after 2000, his mother got sick with cancer. She eventually died and, and Ed moved back to the town of her birth, uh, Winston-Salem, to take care of her. He expected to be able to find the sort of middle-class job that he had had in New York. But instead, what he found was that manufacturing jobs in North Carolina were vanishing. And the ones that were left weren't paying nearly as well as the ones that went away. Ed tried his hand at those, but they had variable hours and he, he needed a solid stream of income. So he took his job for the state. Then he started cleaning his church on the weekends as a, as a way to earn extra money. And soon enough, he had two full-time jobs. Um, along with his wife's job, and he needed that in order to send his children to college and, and afford a house and give them a better life. And this is an example, Ed is an example of the type of stress that the American worker has been under for much of the last several decades. Um, all of the income gains that American workers have made since 1980 uh, come down to uh, additional hours worked, uh, economic statistics show us. Uh, in fact, um, Leading into this most recent recession, uh, all of uh, the, the American workers' gains were uh, exceeded by how much extra they worked. So if you took away the additional amount of work that Americans are doing, they wouldn't have gotten ahead at all. Um, Ed is a particularly amazing example of this. He, he told me in interviews that uh, he got himself a cancer diagnosis at one point in, in recent years. And he had to get treatments every day and he'd go in and he'd get tr treatments and he never once missed a day of work. He never complained about it. He still doesn't complain about it. His second job is different now. He, he works at, uh, at the counter at a liquor store, but he remains stressed by the economy and the inability of a single job to give him what I consider, what I believe we all uh, consider the aspirations of a middle-class life, the ability to pay for your kids to go to school, for you to be able to retire comfortably, for you to own a home and a car and help, have health insurance. And so Ed, like so many Americans, was working additionally hard, breaking his back uh, six days a week often just to provide that type of life. Didn't used to be that way in America. And I think you know, those of us uh, who grew up uh, when I did in the, in the 80s and the 90s heard this as stories, uh, and those who grew up earlier remember this to be the case. In the era after World War II, the American economy delivered for several decades the types of rapid income gains for workers and families that lifted millions of people into the middle class. Um, jobs paid well, they, and pay increased, and people could get good paying jobs even if they hadn't gone to college like Ed, who went to college but never graduated. The American economy had a sort of different compact with the American worker that lasted for decades. And, and when I was growing up in a largely white town in, in rural Oregon, uh, we understood that from the way we were taught in school to be a sort of leave it to beaver type situation. Um, that post-war, boys came home, they went to work in their suits, and that you know it was sort of this white male delivered prosperity that was the great American middle-class boom after uh, World War II. But something happened to that. Something happened to that in the 80s and the 90s and, and in this century. And I watched it happen in uh, my hometown of McMinnville, Oregon. Um, McMinnville used to be a timber town 
and so many of the kids I went to school with, um, their parents uh, either worked in the woods or the mills or in some sort of industry that supported the timber industry, and they were able to have middle-class lives, even if they didn't go to college. And so many of my contemporaries kind of grew up thinking that would be the track for them as well. But that ladder snapped out from under them as the timber industry cratered in the 80s. Um, Oregon, which used to have just a very high concentration of timber jobs, started to shed them pretty dramatically. And, and a lot of those guys didn't, they didn't graduate high school or, or didn't go on to college after they did graduate high school. And they were stuck in an economy that paid them less for, hard, for very hard work than their parents had earned. They had prospects for an economic uh, advancement that were far uh, less than their parents had had. And, and as a kid, I, I wondered about this. I, I, I wanted to know why. Why wasn't the economy working for these guys in particular I went to school with? And, and as, as an adult, that, uh, versions of that question have haunted me throughout my career. Why isn't the economy delivering new, better jobs to make good use of the, of the workers uh, who have been, who have lost their jobs to not just the, the timber cutbacks, but the automation and outsourcing and manufacturing jobs or of good service jobs, uh, secretarial jobs, for example, uh, call center jobs. There are so many jobs that used to provide a middle-class wage in the United States that either don't exist or don't pay well anymore. And I have spent much of my career trying to figure out why. Um, now, one of the wonderful things about uh, growing up and leaving a small town is that it expands your worldview and you start to understand things that you didn't learn as a kid. One of the big things that I have learned over that time is that the question of when will the economy start to work again is not confined to the white guys I went to high school with. It's confined, I mean, it is the, the full broad universe of a very diverse American workforce. And in fact, the answer uh, for why it's not working lies with that workforce. It, it lies with what's gone wrong for Ed Green, uh, who uh, I should have perhaps mentioned earlier is black. Um, Ed's family is a classic example of what economic research I have learned over my time as a reporter shows us to be the great actual story of what built the American middle class, the foundation of our economy. Ed's mother uh, was the daughter of uh, workers at the, at the uh, R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Factory in Winston-Salem, uh, which provided one of the few good sets of jobs for black workers in that part of North Carolina uh, when she was growing up, but was dangerous and, and difficult work. Um, well, she left Winston-Salem and went north as part of the Great Migration to New York in the 1950s uh, with what was very rare at the time, a, a sort of um, business school degree uh, beyond just high school. She got a job for a telephone company. Her husband got a job as a plumber. Those jobs would not have been available to black Americans uh, for much of the time before the Great Migration started. What had happened with World War II was, um, so many men went off uh, uh, to war that women were called into the workforce and opportunities began opening for them. Even, even after the men came back, 30 million American women joined the labor force from 1950 to 1980. Um, and the same was true uh, for, for black men. So women of all races started to work in much larger numbers. Black men have opportunities start to be open to them. But even, even then, before the civil rights, on the eve of the Civil Rights Act, 
uh, the American economy was very much built toward, uh, for, for white men. Uh, 95% of doctors and lawyers in 1960 were white men uh, because of the educational opportunities and, and the sheer discrimination that was holding back uh, women of all races and men of color in the economy. But the hard work of civil rights changed that. And this is the amazing story of the American middle class that we didn't learn when I was a kid, but, but that I have learned from economic research as a reporter. From 1960 forward, uh, the breaking down of barriers that allowed women who were formerly not allowed to be anything but school teachers or nurses to suddenly become doctors or engineers uh, that had held uh, black men back from, uh, from getting a complete uh, high school education even or, or a college education and then going on to, to break through uh, barriers in the corporate world. Um, that created an enormous amount of prosperity, not just for those black families like Ed Green's, but also for the entire country. It, it just, it turns out that when you have really skilled people and you hold them back to, uh, to paraphrase the Sermon on the Mount, when you have all of these lights that you hide under a bushel and then you, and then you, and then you pull them out, it just makes the entire economy brighter. And, and what the research shows us is that it made the American economy grow faster at a time when unemployment was low and that allowed incomes to grow for everyone across the board. So 40% of the economic growth per worker that America has achieved since 1960, uh, research from economists at Stanford and the University of Chicago shows, is attributable to that better allocation of talent, that moving of, uh, of, of black men and, and women of all races and, and, and immigrants also, uh, who other research shows to be incredibly uh, helpful for the entrepreneurship and innovation of the American economy, the opening of doors for those workers and the uh, allowing them uh, to uh, defeat some of the discrimination that has held them back, uh, that has been a massive improvement for the American economy. Those workers built the foundation of the American middle class. But then to get back to the basement metaphor, in the last 40 years, we have neglected that foundation. Um, we've neglected those workers. And in some cases, we've made it actively harder for them to get back. The hard work of civil rights uh, was not finished. We did not equalize economic opportunity in this country. Um, research uh, from a University of Tennessee economist, Marianne Wanamaker and a colleague shows that um, the penalty that you have for being born a black man uh, in uh, the United States today, in terms of economic mobility, your ability to do better than your father uh, is, is the same as the penalty was for a black man born uh, right when reconstruction started. It has not improved. We have not improved economic mobility for black men. Um, this is true uh, in just so many ways, the economy continues to hold back um, women and, and men of color, and we continue to to hold back immigrants who want to come in and deploy their talents to, uh, to build our economy better. And so what we saw in the 80s was a, a war on drugs that uh, incarcerated millions of black men who, who otherwise could have been making uh, fuller use of their talents. We saw shifts in the economy that penalized women. Uh, in particular, what we should have seen as the economy uh, moved from more of a production economy where uh, where we make things and ma manufacture things and through the sources of, of automation and, and the forces of automation and, uh, and outsourcing, um, we moved to more of a 
service-based economy. Well, that should have uh, rewarded women who are going to college more, attaining skills faster than men uh, across the board in their generational cohorts right now. But instead, um, our policies didn't keep up. We've, we've continued to make it difficult for women to fully contribute to our economy now, in particular because we have not solved the vexing issue of, of affordable and available childcare in this country. Women pay absolutely large penalties when they leave the labor force temporarily or, or for a, a, a larger chunk of time to, ha to have children in a way that men do not uh, pay penalties. All of this adds up to uh, an economy where the foundation of, of our most important workers, those women and, and of all races and men of color who built our middle class made us truly different and special in, in the post-war era, we've neglected them. And this is both a, uh, a difficult and, and bad story for us, but, but it's also an opportunity. It is uh, what we see now in America is a huge group of workers who are being underutilized, who if we can uh, invest in them and, and let them flourish, uh, will, you know, I believe very strongly because of, of the research that I have read and the reporting I've done, they will be uh, the foundation again of, of a new surge in the middle class. Um, and I was thinking about this a lot uh, when we had uh, some guys into our basement last week to, to talk to us about the work that we might need to do to, uh, to shore it up, to get it, um, uh, to get it to a place where the foundation was no longer being threatened so much by all this water intrusion. And we could see, we, we haven't owned the home that long, but we could see places where um, other homeowners had tried sort of temporary patches to make things better. They had you know, sealed up a, a wall here, tried some paint there. I'll confess that I even did a little bit of it. My, my son gave me a, a product a, a couple of years back for Father's Day that um, is one of those spray things that, that promises that whatever you spray it on, it will, it will fix it. So I sprayed it on a wall that was leaking and sure enough, it, it, it plugged up uh, some of the leaks, but then new ones just sprouted right in the places I hadn't sprayed. And, and what the guys were explaining to us was until you fundamentally fixed the problem, until you you have absolutely done the hard work and, and, and spent the time and money to, to truly alleviate the water, you're, you're not going to be able to avoid more and more problems like that afflicting your foundation. And this is true of our economy too. It's true of the people who we need to invest in. We've tried a lot of quick fixes over the last several decades to shore up our middle class. We just came through a period of that where we're, tax cuts and increased federal spending and very low interest rates gave sort of a sugar high for a few years to uh, the American economy. And, and incomes did grow temporarily. But we haven't seen the sustained, truly fundamental uh, productivity growth over time that would lead to a much more sustainable uh, repairing of our economic foundation. And, and uh, that was exposed when you know, we had the storm of this pandemic recession. Uh, what we have seen are the workers who are so important and so fundamental to our economy have been the ones hardest hit and they had so little to shield them from that hit. Black men, Hispanic uh, men and women, women of all races, uh, they have been 
Absolutely, because they are the frontline workers and, and most likely to contract the coronavirus and most likely to be exposed to job loss because they can't work from home. They have been the ones to suffer disproportionate economic damage from this recession. And they started it in a place where they had far less wealth than a, a typical uh, comparable white family did. So what we have to do is not another series of quick fixes. Um, I truly believe, and this is a hard thing to say, it's, it's not a good five point plan, but I truly believe the very best economic strategy that America could have right now would be to finish the work of civil rights. Uh, as we dig out from uh, this recession, as we uh, take the steps needed to keep uh, money flowing to uh, the workers and the businesses that need it to, to bridge the time until it's safe for people to be out, uh, and in a fully uh, running economy again. Once we've done that, we need to get back to work in our individual lives, at a, at a business level, and at a government level, tearing down the final barriers to opportunity, whether intentional or unintentional, that keep Americans from contributing their best talents uh, to the workforce. If we can do that, uh, I believe we have a real chance to rebuild a middle-class boom, just like we had after World War II. I think about this a lot, actually, in, in an Episcopalian context. Um, the title of my book, uh, it comes from uh, a prayer book, uh, a prayer in the back of the prayer book, uh, which is one of the ones that, I, I don't know if, if any of you used to do this, but um, when my priest would go on just a little bit too long in the sermon, sometimes I'd flip through the prayer book and, and just start to read. And what I found is that the Book of Common Prayer is filled with, with poetry, uh, really, prayers that speak to a much deeper sense of the human understanding than um, perhaps any particular sermon uh, that I would otherwise be hearing that day could. And one stuck with me and now actually forms the title of my book. It's, uh, it's called The Pr Prayer for the Oppressed. And I want to read it to you now in, in closing. Um, the Prayer for oppressed, the Oppressed goes like this. Look with pity, O Heavenly Father, upon the people in this land who live with injustice, terror, disease, and death as their constant companions. Have mercy upon us. Help us to eliminate our cruelty to these our neighbors. Strengthen those who spend their lives establishing equal protection of the law and equal opportunities for all, and grant that every one of us may enjoy a fair portion of the riches of this land. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. And that's a prayer for people. It's a prayer for the foundation of our economy and our country. And it's also a prayer for ourselves. If we can truly give all American workers their fair portion of the riches of our land, I truly believe our land will be richer and we all will be too. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for such a wonderful talk. And it so resonated with me. You know, my father was World War II era black man with a high school education, um, 40 years as a carpenter, and was able to provide a very comfortable middle-class life for my mom and my two brothers and me. And as you say, that's just not possible any longer. Thank you so much. What a moving and powerful talk. So a few questions. Um, as you well know, uh, it's become an article of faith, even among Democratic voters and Democratic politicians who were huge proponents of it at the time, that a huge part of the reason for the loss of these good uh, paying middle-class jobs was NAFTA in particular and other trade deals like that. What's your take on the role that these trade um, deals played in this, if any? In your view? Um, 
I think it's, there is an important uh, story about trade uh, embedded um, in what's happened to the middle class. And and I I talk about it a lot in the book. I, I, um, I spent a lot of time in Ohio when I was, uh, when I I lived there for two years and then I've gone back to it since then. Um, And, and you can't spend time in Ohio without hearing about NAFTA and China. Um, I think China, the research shows China has been the big, uh, change to our economy. It, 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 it um, knocked out 2 million jobs uh, based on, on a couple of particular uh, persuasive estimates from economists. Um, uh, it also brought us a lot of good things. It brought us, um, you know, we basically made a trade. We traded those jobs for cheaper and more abundant consumer products. We all have better video games and the prices that um, some of our neighbors don't have the good paying jobs they had anymore. Um, I, I think what's different, we've had shocks like that in America before. And what's different this time is that um, when, for example, technology made it so we didn't need nearly as many workers in agriculture in the United States, new and better uses of those workers appeared. Those workers ended up in factories where they could earn more money. And and while it was dangerous work, could do even more to contribute to the growth of the U.S. economy. That has not happened. I mean, there there are laid off manufacturing workers. There are people like like Ed Green who who looked into a manufacturing job who just simply have not found better uses of their talents. The better jobs haven't appeared. And so I think a, a big part of the American story is why were policymakers not better uh, equipped to anticipate that those possible um, disruptions would happen? Why haven't we done more for those workers? And why haven't we done more to empower the people who I believe would create those jobs? I think, and in this case, I I am in particular talking about women. Um, We have a vast sexism in the way uh, venture capital and other sort of business startup capital are distributed in the United States. And I think it holds us back from the creation of interesting new jobs and industries even that would be well positioned to put those laid off workers uh, back to work in a more valuable way. I, I'm an optimist for human labor and believe that there is a lot of good that those workers can do for our economy. So um, I, I definitely think we should focus, and, and obviously our politicians have focused so much on the disruptive force that, that was you know, China entering uh, the World Trade Organization. But um, the answer, I think, uh, and, and where we've really missed the boat is by not spending nearly enough time figuring out, well, where are the better jobs to replace those jobs going to come from? Right. Let's talk for a minute about unions. It seems that they're both a symptom and a cause of, of what we're talking about. Can you comment on that? Well, I, you know, the, the period in, in which uh, the middle class boomed was a, a much more unionized period in the United States. Uh, my book actually, um, uh, the, very, the first chapter opens with a union, uh, sort of a union action uh, in the R.J. Reynolds tobacco plant uh, led by black women during World War II. Um, so there is, a, there is a part, a big part of the, of the story of the post-war boom that, that unions played. Um, it's also true that the changes in the U.S. economy over the last several decades have just naturally moved um, sort of the economy away from what has historically been the unionized production sectors and into the service sectors, which have not been as well unionized. Um, so, uh, so I think that there are ways to recapture some of the uh, of the gains that workers made through unionization. Um, uh, one of the, some of those, obviously, unions have pushed very hard for uh, for more coverage of service sector workers. 
But it's also true that you can get a lot of the benefits of better bargaining power for workers simply by running a hot economy for a really long time. If if the economy is growing fast and unemployment is low um, and it's doing so in a sustainable way through productivity gains and not an unsustainable way through high deficits and and, and sort of uh, unconventional monetary policy, uh, then I think you have a real chance for workers to demand to be paid what they're worth. And, um, you know, we saw a little bit of that at, at the in the three years, uh, 2017, 2018, 2019, before the uh, pandemic hit. And we saw a lot of that in the late 1990s, which is the one really good time for workers that we've had since uh, the post-war era. So, uh, yeah, I think that that a hot economy with bargaining power for workers is is a a big part of of, of this sort of story that I'm trying to tell of how we can uh, make things better for everyone. Well, here here's a question that's not meant to be political or partisan at all. I really ask it in a clinical way, but the white working class has drifted over the decades from, generally speaking, the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. Is there is there a rationale for that in terms of the core of Republican policies, or is that is that uh, counterintuitive given what those policies are? Um, I think it, it, it's interesting to note a couple of things about the drift of the white working class uh, over the last few cycles, in particular. One is that um, those workers really have been left behind by the economy. If you think of white men without college degrees, um, the, the, the economists who, who did that study I, I mentioned earlier that, that has quantified the, the benefits, the gains to the economy from better allocation of talent for women and, and for black men. Um, I, I was talking with, with one of the authors of that study and about sort of what's changed since it published. And he said, you know, the economy has really clearly started to treat um, white men without college degrees in that same left behind underutilized bucket, uh, like almost as if they are a historical minority group now um, compared to white men with college degrees. Guys like me, we, we are, I in fact name myself in the book as sort of a member of the villain class of, of this. Uh, of this. Um, but I, I think, so I think that's an important thing to note. I also think it's important to note that the white working class has dramatically different experiences uh, with sort of how it has dealt with the, the last two recessions, and in particular, the 2008 financial crisis, um, compared to other groups of workers who were hit hard. Um, they got much more pessimistic. Uh, uh, black workers, uh, Latino workers, uh, who many of whom didn't necessarily feel like they had achieved the American dream yet, they saw that 2008 recession as knocking them back uh, in their pursuit, but the, the, they were still on the path. Whereas a lot of um, white men, in, in particularly in the industrial Midwest, uh, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, places that have been very important politically, um, those men felt like they had, they had achieved a version of the American dream and it had been taken away from them. And psychologists and economists talk about that as being very, two very difficult or different phenomenon. And, uh, and I think that that has been important for, for politics, um, that, that it has sort of had a different reaction on those sets of workers. Now I'll say a, a, a final thing I will say is that um, uh, those workers were failed by the media in, in 2016, myself very much included. We told a story of, um, of white working class uh, Americans who were all trending toward a particular candidate in that election. And in our efforts to, to understand them, we made it sound like they were uh, suffering by themselves. We, we focused on them. 
so much more than we focused on struggling black workers or struggling immigrant workers, um, uh, any sort of struggling workers of color. And so we gave them this idea that, that um, and, and a, in a susceptibility to an argument that the workers who don't look like you are actually the ones who took this prosperity away from you, as opposed to you and all those other workers are, are, are struggling, suffering in, together. And, and, and I think that's made it harder to make the case that, that those workers have so much to be gained by banding together and, and demanding an economy that works for all of them. So um, I think that is part of the, of the reason that the politics have played out the way that they have is, is that the media coverage uh, sort of gave a really skewed view of what was actually going on in the economy. Part of your portfolio at the Times is also to cover tax issues. And so could you talk a little bit about how the tax code is skewed against uh, middle class jobs and toward, toward the upper 1%? Yeah, I mean, there's um, the I, I read a lot about uh, about sort of like uh, nerdery of tax policy that doesn't uh, that you might not think um, affects the middle class, but I, I think it actually, you know, tax the tax code is a way for the country to say what it values and what it doesn't, and what particularly what types of work it values. And there's been a long-standing bias um, among many economists toward this idea that we should tax capital investments, the returns on investment less than we tax labor, the returns to people working hard. Um, but what I think there's an emergence, an emerging strain of research that, that suggests that maybe that's not the right way to look at it, um, or at least that the bias should not be um, anywhere close to what it has been. Uh, and there's some reasons for that. One is that the people who own capital in this country tend to be the legacy holders of, of privilege in, in our economy. You know, white men, and in particular white men with college degrees, but sort of wealthy white men hold a, a lot of capital in this country. And so when we reduce rates on capital, we are, we are disproportionately helping them as opposed to the workers who have been trying for generations to build up capital and have struggled to. And so, um, and then, and then by, by taxing labor uh, with a different, uh, you know, at, at a higher rate, I, I think we are sort of pushing companies to treat labor as uh, differently than, than they treat their, their investments. And, and um, my view that's in the book and the, that's actually shared by a lot of economists across the spectrum is that if you equalized uh, those rates, um, regardless of what rate you might choose, uh, you do more to, to reduce those biases and actually um, get companies to think more of their workers as sustainable uh, investments to make. Um, you know, I'm from Oregon, so I think of all these things in, in, in forest terms. Uh, but, but really, uh, companies started a long time, well, several decades ago, thinking about their workers less as trees and gardens to be planted and cultivated, and more just like, you know, uh, disposable resources uh, that they could you chew up and use and then and then toss away and they'd find go find something else. Um, but I think that the economy and the country do much better when uh, tax policy is uh, geared toward making everyone think about each other in sustainable terms. In addition to tax policy, another part of the answer surely is education reform. Could you talk a little bit about what you think needs to be done to skew the education system so that workers are better prepared for uh, good paying middle class jobs? There's so much. We, we truly could spend uh, an entire afternoon just talking about the ways in which access to good education remains unequal in this country. Um, outcomes in education remain unequal in this country. Uh, I'll just focus on one of them in particular. I, I think that we, um, we have now an economy where 
a four-year college degree is used as a signaling device to employers in ways that are perhaps not actually helpful or have very little to do with the, uh, you know, a person's ability to do that job, and that we'd be better served if we had um, a much more fluid type of skills training that is not sort of you go to a four-year college or, you know, maybe you, you get some specialized training that you need at a community college, but with much more focus on two-year programs, apprenticeship programs, um, different sort of uh, things that, that workers can do over their lifetimes, not just in that period right after high school, but, you know, if you lose a job uh, in your 40s now um, because, you know, you no longer have VCRs to repair and that was what you were trained for, we should make it very easy for you to learn the next thing that's needed um, for the type of overall skill set you have. Um, other countries do this better than we do. Uh, and, and so I think rethinking that entire wave of skills training, and this is something that Washington is really great at talking about. I feel like since I got here more than a decade ago, I've covered dozens of, you know, blue ribbon commission type reports from business lobbyists and candidates on both sides of the aisle. I mean, I remember Mitt Romney had a very uh, comprehensive plan, for example, in, in, in 2012, and, and the Obama administration talked a lot, a lot about it, but it's very hard to get something done. Um, in part because it involves so many different levels of government at once, but it's important. We um, we shouldn't just be divided as a country into people who went to a graduated from a four-year college and didn't, and we should not be divided as a labor market into that. And final question, and it's relevant to this: green jobs. You know, many people think that that really is a huge part of the solution. That climate change actually poses as much of an opportunity as a challenge. And it can provide lots of economic opportunity to the people we're talking about. Is that your view as well? My view is that um, I mean I, I think that um, the, the decarbonization of the economy is is an imperative, uh, both in in moral and economic terms. Um, you know we know who is going to be hurt the most uh, by uh, an increasingly warming world. It is it remains the poor, not just the poor in America, but but the poor around the world. They're, they're the most vulnerable to climate change, and so we have. I think there's an imperative to to transition the economy to to deal with that. But I also think there's a lot of opportunity there, and there's a lot of opportunity in general in solving human problems. We we. We don't, um, you know, we have misaligned incentives in the economy and a lot of the great flashy startups that have come online in the last 20 years have been less focused on big human problems like improving healthcare or decarbonizing the economy. Some of them certainly have, uh, than they have on, on, you know, finding new and better ways for us to deliver uh, online advertising to, uh, to, to, to viewers or whatnot. So I think in general, uh, an economy that um, steers more people toward solving major human problems like climate change is going to be more productive and um and and it's going to function more efficiently and i certainly think that if if uh, we don't decarbonize the economy we're going to have a lot of other big economic externalities uh that we're going to have to deal with that are going to hold back everybody jim tankersley thank you so much for such a wonderful talk everyone i commend the riches of this land to you it's available and bookstores out in August. And uh, as you've heard, it's a terrific account of what's happened in our country and the impact it's had and solutions as to how we can address this issue. Thank you so much, Jim, for being with us. Clark, thank you for having me so much. Our next speaker is October 25th, and that speaker will be Charlie Cook, one of America's preeminent pollsters. And it'll be very timely as he will give us his take on election 2020. Thanks everyone for joining us and have a great rest of your Sunday.